0: You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. new series on the life of Jesus where we'll be looking uh, from Luke chapter 4 to Luke chapter 9 seeing the early uh, ministry of Jesus and so we come now to our sermon text of the first 13 verses of chapter 4 which should be uh, somewhat well known to us the temptation of Jesus where he is tempted by Satan so hear these words from Holy Scripture and Jesus of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And he answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So we come to this passage uh, in the ministry and the life of Jesus. And the way that Luke has... uh, composed this narrative uh, he begins in chapter one with the uh, amazing and miraculous birth story of john the baptist the forerunner who would come proclaiming and preparing the way of the lord to come and then we have jesus's miraculous birth which is even greater than john's that jesus is born of a woman but also overshadowed and is conceived by the holy spirit Already setting the stage that that Jesus is greater than John. Indeed, Jesus is the greatest person who was ever born, and because of his birth. But then Luke continues on, and we come to Jesus's baptism, where in this moment that Jesus is baptized, he is identifying with the people of God. Right? He is being he is being uh, baptized in a baptism of repentance, something which he doesn't need in order to identify himself with the people of Israel as their messiah and it's at that moment that the clouds seem to part and this voice from heaven you are my beloved son with you i am well pleased and so we have jesus's miraculous birth indicating who he is we have the father proclaiming who he is and then then it's when luke goes through his genealogy at the end of chapter three remember mark sorry matthew begins with the genealogy Uh, luke seems to place his here right before the temptation of Jesus. And Luke's genealogy traces it backwards all the way uh, to Adam, the son of Adam, the son of God. And I think this is setting the stage because you'll remember throughout the Bible there are only two people who are ever directly tempted by Satan. There's only two people that have a, a confrontation where Satan is standing there in front of them enticing them to sin. And who are they? Well, they're Adam, and they're Jesus. And it's interesting that Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. It's almost as if Luke is painting this picture of Jesus who is the Son of God in his birth and declared by the Father, and also the Son of Man based on his genealogy. And then, as we go through this temptation section, we'll see the ways in which it compares and also contrasts to Adam. Remember, Adam was tempted in the garden with every good thing around him. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness with nothing. And Adam, who was given everything, he fails. Jesus, who was given nothing, succeeds. And so as we come to this, we'll look at this in three parts. It's, there's a, Luke sets the stage in the first two verses, then he moves through the three temptations, and then he adds this uh, conclusion at the end. And so setting the stage, uh, in verse 1, it speaks about Jesus as being led by the Spirit. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Uh, and already Luke is highlighting for us that this is not taking Jesus by surprise. It's not as if he opened up his door and Satan was there, and Jesus had no idea what was going to happen, but the Lord is directing all of this, and he is leading Jesus directly into conflict with Satan. And the Spirit leads Jesus into this wilderness. And it's to call to mind Israel's wilderness, wandering, which was actually also a test, a time of testing for the people of God. But the the wilderness here, it's it's to just bring up memories of a hostile place, a place devoid of people. Uh, Deuteronomy speaks of it as a place full of fiery serpents and scorpions. Luke speaks of it later as a a place where demons dwell. That it's meant to be this picture of uh, just devoid of human life, unfit for human life, and a place where humans do not want to live. And yet this is where Jesus is now 40 days without food here in the wilderness. He, He is stripped of everything. He has no friends. He has no help, it seems. It is him alone with Satan. And the way Luke recounts it in, in verse 2, for 40 days being tempted by the devil. It's likely Luke here is, is bringing out the point that he, through those 40 days, had been tempted continually and repeatedly by Satan. And the, the three that we have recorded here really are the culmination. So Jesus, who is in this hostile place, devoid of food, constantly being bombarded by Satan's temptations, then culminates with these three likely Satan's worst temptations. Now at the moment where Jesus is hungry, weary, alone, tired, Satan then brings out these three at the end. But Jesus here is, is, is in the desert, and he is fasting. He has ate nothing during those days. And Just an interesting question is, why is Jesus fasting during this time of 40 days? Because oftentimes fasting is a sign of penance, of you have done something wrong, and so this time of prayer and fasting occurs in order to restore that relationship with God, to remind you of your dependence upon Him. But clearly that's not what Jesus is needing to do here. But there's another element to fasting in the Old Testament, and that is in preparation... For ministry, in preparation for something to happen. So Moses, when he goes up on the mountain, he fasts. He fasts in, in order to be receptive when he's going to receive the Ten Commandments from God. And so Jesus here is fasting in preparation for his ministry. But also it does, it brings Jesus to this point where he's at his weakest and his most vulnerable. And I think it's just incredibly important to remember that, again, the reason he is in this position is because of you and me. That that he is here at his weakest. He is here facing down the worst temptation any human has ever faced. But again, as Hebrews reminds us, it's for the joy that's set before him. As I stated in the children's talk, I believe that is what is getting Jesus through this. That he knows the reason that he's here is to save his people. And so that all that Satan is offering him, as we'll see, many of them are are things that he actually can't offer him. That he's doing it out of a love for you and me. He's facing these temptations in order to be the second Adam, in order to be the new Israel, in order that he will be able to fulfill everything that the law demands. But also wonderfully, as the, the book of Hebrews will bring out, what we then also have is we have a God who actually understands temptation. And I think that alone sets Christianity off from every other religion. When we pray, when we are are tempted, when we uh, face down these temptations in our life, we come to a God who actually legitimately empathizes. That there's these theological truths that I know, but I'm not sure that I can completely comprehend the fact that when I am tempted and I plead to the Lord Jesus Christ, that he actually hears my prayers and he goes, I actually understand. I actually know what it's like. I'm actually here for you. And so, Satan now, after this period of 40 days, uh, these are these last three temptations that are recorded. For us here uh, and as I put in the service sheets you'll note that Jesus's response is all taken from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6 and chapter 8 so these sections of Deuteronomy seem to be uh, incredibly important uh, in terms of the way that Jesus is dealing with these temptations so there are three temptations here the first temptation uh, in verses 3 through 4 is the temptation uh, where Satan says turn these stones into bread um, Through reading a variety of different commentators. I thought it was interesting to see the the ways they uh, summarized the temptations and the way in which they just kind of added to what was happening here. One commentator said the temptation here was to distrust God's fatherly care. Someone else said the temptation here is to show what kind of Messiah this Jesus will be. Will he use his power for personal gain or not? Another commentator said it speaks about faith, that true faith prefers to wait for God than deify its own needs. I thought all of those were were wonderful, which is why I wanted to quote all of them here. But they all help us to see different aspects of what is happening in this temptation. But note the way that Satan phrases it. He tells him to turn uh, turn the stone into bread, but he phrases it if. It's a powerful word there, if you are the son of God. He's deliberately, in a sense, taunting him. He's trying to put him to the test to say, if you actually are the son of God, then I want to see proof of that. And if you can't do that, I mean, you can see that dilemma he's, he's, he's trying to force him into. You know, on the one hand, I don't believe you're the son of God. Show me. And then if he doesn't do it, right, well, then you're not the son of God. And so what is Jesus to do? But it's interesting again the way that Luke frames this for us. We already know he is the Son of God. We've been repeatedly told that he is the Son of God. That in his baptism, in his birth, that he is truly the Son of God. So now he's faced, right? He's faced with this interesting dilemma. What will he do? He's faced with his actual legitimate needs. Uh, he is hungry. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. I worry to see what a child would be like after 40 days of not eating. But he, he's legitimately uh, in need. And think about the way in which now he's asked to trust his father. To trust his father's care. Or will he just use his powers to immediately alleviate his suffering? Right. What? What? What will he do? In the situation, will he seek after himself, or will he seek after God? And so Jesus responds by quoting the words from Deuteronomy 8, verse 4. But again, note the words that he phrases this with. His response first is, it is written. And again, it's important to think that when Jesus here is facing his enemy, I mean, he could have just said no. (laughs) By my own authority, no. I'm just not going to do that. Please go away. But that's actually not what he says. Rather, Jesus, the Son of God, actually quotes back to Satan scripture. And I think this does help us see
1: the importance
0: of the Bible, the fact that the Bible is that authoritative. It's so authoritative that actually the Son of God can quote it, and it is authoritative in and of itself. That it's, it's authoritative, Jesus is saying. It's actually authoritative. Before he here was on earth, it is still authoritative because it is God speaking. And so I think it's, it's incredibly important to see the way that he responds. And not just to affirm things like sola scriptura, that the scripture is our sole authority here on earth, but also just to remind us of what the word of God does in our own life. I mean, for Jesus, he is, yes, he is saying that the word of God is authoritative because it's the word of God, but he's also using it directly in his own life. He's using it to combat the temptations of Satan. And the context, I think, is important from Deuteronomy 6 to Deuteronomy 8. Here, there's uh, God, through Moses, is reminding them of what they have just gone through. Deuteronomy is, is, is written really as the final sermon of Moses before the people enter the promised land. But you'll remember the ups and downs of the wilderness wandering, the different ways in which the people of God were tested to trust in God's provision. And how time and time again, uh, they failed to do that. He supplied them manna from heaven. He supplied them water in the desert. He supplied them with quail. He made sure that their clothing never wore out through 40 years of wandering. He was the one who has provided for them. And actually, we, we saw this in Hosea when Hosea is, is recounting to the northern tribe that though they try to find their sustenance, they, they try to find their provision, and everywhere and everyone but God, behind the scenes all along, it was God who had been providing for them. And so just as the, the northern tribe in Hosea's time was, was seeking uh, to find their satisfaction in others, seeking to find their care and their provision in others, whether it's Assyria or Egypt, and so Jesus here is tempted. Right, where will he find his satisfaction? Where will he find? Where will the center of his life be? Will it be centered around food and and his immediate needs, or will it be centered around God? Will it be trusting in God's provision and what He has provided up till then? And will he trust in God's timing? I think it's also interesting to just remember who actually is more trustworthy, God or, or Satan? And this seems to be the exact problem that Adam fell into, that he had the trustworthy words of God, do not eat, and then he had the untrustworthy words of Satan. And here really the same thing is happening. Who, who is Jesus just simply going to trust His heavenly father, which doesn't gain him immediate gratification. (laughs) His heavenly father, which actually is going to necessitate more suffering for him. Or will he just trust in himself or these words of Satan? And Jesus responds to him. Man shall not live by bread alone. And the quote goes on, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus here who responds back to satan what he's uh, really what's underlying all of this is in deuteronomy 8 it's the lord who has provided for israel by his word he's the one who commands and manna rains down from heaven and so there's a a literal way in which god has provided by speaking to his people he speaks and and all of this provision comes to them and yet they fail to trust during that time They, they were asked to trust When God was providing for them food. Jesus is trusting when no food is provided for him. And there's this constant contrast between Israel and Adam and Jesus. Adam, who had everything, fails to trust God's word. Israel, who had God's provision and God's redemption, fails to trust God. And yet Jesus here succeeds in trusting in God's provision, God's care, and God's time, all while actually in a distressing time. I mean, in some sense, Luke is just primarily telling us simply that Jesus really was tested. Jesus really was tempted. I mean, we can think of when times are distressing, there is that temptation to turn to other things, to make other things central in our lives. When, when times are difficult, Uh, It's easy to think of of comforts of these other needs that we want, many of them legitimate. Bread is perfectly legitimate for Jesus to eat bread, to feed his hunger. But yet what we now have is this wonderful picture of Jesus uh, combating temptation with the word of God. But I think more so, even for us, is that he is the one who did it on our behalf. And so that when we are tempted, we can remember that Jesus' temptation is greater than anything we've ever experienced. And yet he succeeds. And I think it's also important to remember that he is full of the Holy Spirit. When we ask, what power did Jesus use? He used the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. When you think of the way in which he's combating temptation, he's not doing it through any superpowers that we don't have access to. We have the very same Word of God. We have the very same Holy Spirit. And we have to take the Word and hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against God. Well, then there's the second temptation uh, in verses 5 through 7. Sorry, verses 5 through 8, where Satan brings Jesus and uh, somehow, miraculously, it seems, shows him all the kingdoms of the world in an instance. And he offers... Jesus, these, if he would worship him, in essence, if he would bypass the cross. The first temptation was about trusting in God's provision. And the second one is about trusting in God's plan. Will will Jesus trust God's plan? And you'll note, too, that when when Satan says that he has all of these kingdoms ready to give Jesus, uh, Jesus actually doesn't contradict him. Jesus doesn't contradict him. Because you'll actually remember Jesus' mission is to dethrone Satan and plunder his kingdom. The the Bible pictures Satan not as the ruler of hell, but as the ruler of the world, the ruler of the kingdom of darkness, and that Jesus' mission is saving people and liberating them from that evil kingdom. And so Jesus responds once more, Uh, with deuteronomy 6 verse 13 he says you shall worship the lord your god and him only shall you serve and again coming from deuteronomy this is where the lord is speaking to the people that he is the one who has provided all good things to them he's the one who has redeemed them he's the one who has demonstrated his power time and time again and so rightly commands the people that they shall worship him only that he's the only one who actually can do what he says, and he's the only one who rightfully then deserves to be worshipped. And again, as we saw in Hosea, that the folly of idolatry, the folly of false gods, is they actually can't do anything. They can't actually provide. But then it becomes even worse than not only can they not provide, not only are they not real, but it actually will bring the punishment of the real God upon you. I also think he, he is, he, in this response, he is also rebuking and reminding Satan of who he should be worshiping. Right here, it seems clear, Satan is definitely just worshiping himself and calling Jesus to join in that worship of himself where Jesus responds, no, there is someone greater than you, someone who has greater power, greater authority, and you are to worship him. And again, we go back to the con- contrast between Israel and Israel and jesus between adam and jesus israel failed to worship god alone despite just the myriad of evidences that they have i mean even just the the first generation out of egypt could testify to the plagues to the parting of the red sea and then the second generation could just cite all of the many provisions that god had done while they were in the wilderness and then throughout israel's history there's just constant reminders to them of what God has done in the past, but also in the present for them. And so they they turn from God despite all of the evidences to the contrary. And here we're seeing Jesus who succeeds, once again facing an even greater trial. Because again, when Israel was in the wilderness, God provided for them. Jesus here really doesn't have any provision. He's alone, he's weak, he's in the wilderness. And also think what he's being offered is just not a trinket or a small plot of land in Palestine. But he's legitimately being offered the entirety of the whole world. But it seems that what Satan appears to be missing is that these promises were already made to Jesus. Psalm 2 and Isaiah 49 speak about the way in which Jesus is promised all of this through his redemption. And through his redemptive work and indeed jesus is coming to free us from the worship of satan from the worship of self that he's freeing us so that we can then worship god alone as we faces this temptation in order to continue to remind us of what he has done in breaking us free from the satanic kingdom uh, this kingdom that that worships itself that what we see throughout the world today And he really is, is, is showing us the way in which we can continue following that path, right? By his power, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we can then resist unbiblical demands to worship anything or anyone else other than the triune God. But I think there's a second thing that Jesus is instructing us here. He's also speaking about ways in which unbiblically to advance the kingdom of God. Think about the ways in which Christians are instructed in in the advancement of the kingdom of God. That we do through, not through force or through manipulation, but we do through prayer and preaching. That that's the way in which Jesus' kingdom advances. Satan here is offering him a shortcut to advance in some roundabout way, right? The kingdom of God. Here, Jesus, you can have all of this, which is already rightfully Jesus's, but you must gain it the wrong way. And so it's a reminder that we continually follow our Savior, advancing his kingdom by the means he presents to us preaching and sacraments, prayer, love, things that are countercultural, especially as we see a world at war today. But it's not above, and church history shows this, it's not above the church to use those uh, tools of Satan's kingdom to try to advance the church. They're great black marks upon the history of the church. Well, Satan now has his last temptation here in verses 9 through 12. He brings him to the pinnacle of the temple. And again, you'll have to remember that the the temple, it signifies, it's God's sanctuary. It's this place that promises protection and promises God's presence. It's almost, if you will, shorthand for God himself. Satan brings him here. And you'll note, now Satan's tactic is he actually quotes scripture back to Jesus. He says, well, for it's written, Jesus, you should look at Psalm 91. You know, throw yourself down from this temple, from the top of this temple. Because remember, Psalm 91, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And so, if you look at the temptations, Matthew has them in a different order. He has all the kingdoms of the world being offered to Jesus as the final temptation. Here, Luke has the final temptation, really almost as a conflict uh, between the right interpretation of Scripture. Jesus starts by saying, it is written. Satan ends by saying, it is written. And there becomes this this conflict over how to rightly interpret Scripture. Scripture. Because I think if we were to reframe this, we would implicitly know that this actually is a dumb idea of putting God to the test. You know, really what Satan's asking is, in a sense, if a, if a Christian doctor, when they're about to perform surgery, just closes their eyes and says, well, God will protect us, I would be very worried about that doctor. Or maybe imagine a Christian skydiver jumping out of that airplane Reciting Psalm 91 with no parachute. (coughs) Well, he will command his angels concerning me. He will guard me, and he will not let my foot, he will not let me strike my foot against a stone. All right, Lord, please follow through with that as he's plummeting to the earth. Right? We know instinctively that's not actually trusting God. That's not actually trusting God. And actually, as an aside, I do wonder if these set of verses, they they help us, actually, in our life. Because I think there's a temptation that we all struggle with, is that we want God to direct our life. I think that there's a right way of wanting. We want to follow God's plan for our life. But I think what we end up wanting is him to take out a billboard. Well, we don't have those in Britain, do we? Billboards Take out a big sign or a big ad in the paper somewhere to say, Michael, this is the plan that I have for your life. Go ahead and go follow that. We have this desire and this this desire to do that, right? Which is almost in a sense testing God, where really what he gives us, he actually gives us Holy Spirit-inspired, Bible-directed common sense. I mean, that's what's at play here, right? Satan is saying, well, just go ahead and test God. That will fulfill the scripture. Jesus will respond, quoting back to him scripture, but there's a sense where this is just common sense. Don't jump from high places expecting God to save you. And Jesus responds to it, quoting from Deuteronomy 6, 16, You shall not put put the Lord your God to the test. And this is quoted, Moses is citing this against Israel for the time in which they failed to trust God. There's this episode, it's recorded in Exodus 17, where the people are, are grumbling. They don't have water, they're in the wilderness. And they're needing water and so they're demanding that the Lord provide for them water and actually what it says in Exodus 17 verse 7 the Israelites are actually saying is God even among us and so you can see the situation that they're presenting they're saying we demand that you provide us with water now and if you don't you don't exist or you're not there or you don't care for us that's what the Israelites are doing and that is that is exactly what Satan is doing here. If he really is your God, if he really is all powerful, well, then he will make sure that you don't go splat when you jump off the temple. And yet, right? It comes back to all of the evidences that Israel had up to that point. They had mountains of evidence that the Lord cared for them, that the Lord loved them. That the Lord would provide for them, could provide for them, and had provided for them. Day after day, their clothing didn't wear out for 40 years. Day after day, Nana rang down. Day after day, quail came. Day Day after day, after day, after day, the Lord provided for them. And here in this one moment where they are thirsty, they question all of that. Israel fails by putting God to the test. Jesus succeeds by trusting God and not jumping off the temple mount. All of these temptations were designed to really try to sever and separate Jesus' relationship to his heavenly father. To put, uh, once again, that, that satanic lie that the serpent gave to Adam. Did God really say, does God really love you? Right? Satan there, when he tempts Adam, is, is severing that relationship between God and man. And here he's trying to do it again to Jesus. But Jesus, who loves his heavenly Father, would not risk a, of separating that relationship, of testing that relationship. And so the Luke records for us then in verse 13, that when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan here is shown as one who has has been bested. He has been beaten. His temptations uh, ended up coming absolutely to no fruition. But he's by no means finished, as the rest of the gospel will show us, that he waits for a better time to attack once again. Really, we can think of many instances over Jesus' life, but certainly this seems to indicate, to me at least, thinking in terms of the cross, right? Judas betrays him, his disciples, flee right he lives a life of being attacked whether verbally or even physically by israelites by god's own people whom he is sent to you can think of the pharisees or the ordinary people or those in power the sadducees but all of these people who should know better and should know that jesus is their messiah yet they are against him so Jesus will continue to face temptations throughout his lifetime. But I love the way that Luke paints this picture. That Satan has thrown everything he could at attacking God's kingdom. And failed. And then as we, we turn over into the rest of chapter 4, now God is going to throw everything at Satan and his kingdom. In verse 31 of chapter 4, Jesus is going on the offensive. He heals a man possessed by a demon. It's this beautiful picture where he is freeing this man in a very graphic way from the kingdom of darkness and bringing him in. Mark speaks of the fact that there needs to be this stronger man coming. Jesus speaks of the fact that he is coming to plunder the kingdom of Satan. So as we look at this, uh, this morning some general application that we can find from it. One of those is very simple. Satan is real. He's not a myth. Jesus shows us here, Luke records for us here, that he is cunning and that his desire is for the destruction of God's kingdom. He did that in the garden. He tried to do it here in our text today, and he is still active at trying to do that throughout the world today. Peter warns that he is like a a roaring lion prowling, ready to devour. Paul tells us we are engaged in spiritual warfare, not with with weapons, physical weapons, but against spiritual powers with spiritual weapons. The second thing I think we can take from this verse is that Jesus has withstood this temptation. And so part of that is that simply this is the Messiah. We are just simply to take from this that Jesus actually is the faithful Messiah, and he has faced this great temptation, and now his plan will continue. Jesus will continue to entrust himself to God, trusting in God all the way to the end for the purpose of destroying Satan's kingdom. Thirdly, I think this helps us see what spiritual warfare actually is. Contrary to, to Hollywood and sensational things of spiritual warfare, right, it's actually simply more mundane. The, the temptations that we face are simply to turn from trusting God, to trust in ourselves, to put our immediate needs in, in such a way that it impugns the character and care of God. That spiritual warfare really is just simply fought at the levels of affection and trust. It's a lot less to do with demon possession, per se, more to do with just simply trusting money instead of trusting God. And so finally, we just come back to see what Jesus has done on our behalf. He withstood these temptations so that he might rescue us. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And honestly, I think these verses at their core should just cause us to love jesus more to realize this is the extent not the entirety of what he did for you and me but this is certainly showing that the length that he is willing to go in order that he might save you from satan's grasp and that alone makes me thankful to have these verses here because there's just simply another instance of the demonstrating of jesus's love for his people so with that let us go to him Heavenly Father, we we thank you. Jesus, we praise you for enduring temptation on our behalf. We do pray that these verses would remind us of our need to persevere in the face of temptation. That we would do so not to earn your love, but to rest knowing that your love is greater than all the temptations of this world. That having you, we have all things. So Heavenly Father, we pray, would you strengthen us for the battle ahead. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing song is The Lord's My Shepherd. Uh, Again, a fitting way as we think of coming into Monday morning that the Lord leads us, that though we walk the darkest path, He is with us and comforts us. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at Gloucester that's P-R-E-S. For more. Thank you.